Hey, welcome to Anarchy to Diapers. Today's episode is with children's author Michael Cassio. He wrote the book, When I Was a Child, I Was Always Afraid, a story about conquering fear. How did I meet Mr. Cassio? Well, going back two years ago, my son was thumbing through his book at a store. He really loved the illustrations. And when we went to go purchase the book, they told me that Mr. Cassio would be in the following week to do a book reading. So we put the book on hold. We attended the book reading. Mr. Cassio read the book. Then we did a whole discussion on fear. What are you scared of? How do you think you can overcome it? When that was done, I got to meet his family. And I talked to Mr. Cassio for almost an hour about being a dad, what it means to you. It's one of the reasons I invited him on the podcast. I also loved that he could see past my Dead Kennedys Holiday Cambodia t-shirt, my tattoos, and address me as a person. Which you'd be surprised how many people can't see past the band shirt, can't see past the tattoos. They think I'm immature, I'm not going to be a good dad, or I won't have anything of value to offer a conversation about parenting. With that being said, I'm not going to open the podcast like I normally do. Normally, I scream anarchy to diapers followed by profanity for the very reasons I just told you. I think it's funny. They think that these little things make you a bad dad. They can't see the core principles of what holds a family together or what makes a good family or a good father. I think Mr. Cassio embraced this conversation more than anybody else to date. He really gets into details about his family and how it influenced his decision when he became a father. He talks about some of the good lessons he learned from his dad, some of the bad lessons he learned from his dad, and how he's made changes to adjust that or done different approaches. I really love how he talks about how he grew up in Brooklyn and the stories he tells. Some of them I can close my eyes and envision like a movie in my head. For that very reason, I did very minimal editing. He never answers a question directly, but at the end of the podcast, he'll have all the questions answered. So, here's Mr. Cassio. And I'll keep the diapers, baby. flavor as to what it was like growing up, you know, as an immigrant, really, you know, even though I was born here, I popped out two months before, uh, two months after my mom got here, so. Oh, really? So. Yeah, my parents, my father actually proposed to my mom in Italy, right? He was working for a, a big landowner, a baron, from the time he was a little kid, so he was one of their most prized employees, and Something happened, and he said, you know, I've always, he's, he always had this thing that he wanted to travel, wanted to come to the United States, and something happened, and he had a, a disagreement with uh, the Baroness, and he told her, I'm sorry, I'm going I'm to leave in a few months, you have to find a replacement. They were very sorry about that and everything, and so uh, before he left, he proposed to my mom, 
because her, her dad worked at San Giorgio with him, you know, so he proposed to my mom. He said, but I'm going to the United States first. You have to be patient. I want to find a job. I want to make sure I, you know, I'm making a living. Found a job. He became a longshoreman. Went back to Italy. They got married in Sicily. Traveled to Florence. I was, I'm a honeymoon baby because nine months later in Brooklyn, he sent for my mom then and my mom came over seven months pregnant and then I was born in Brooklyn. So, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a neat story. I tell everybody I'm Sicilian, built in Florence, imported to Brooklyn. So <laughs> That's beautiful. Your parents were immigrants and um, how many children did you have? Do I have? Uh, your parents. My I'm parents, uh, three boys. I'm the oldest. Okay. So they named me a very interesting name. Uh, which is kind of uh, maybe where I get my creativity from. They named me Michelangelo, Michelangelo, okay. after my grandfather, God rest his soul. Um, and as a little kid, you know, I loved the name. Um, you know, my parents would call me Miguele or my Kutsu, little Mikey, whatever. You know, that, that's the equivalent of little Mikey in Italian. Uh, but when I started school, it, you know, they called you by whatever was on your birth certificate. That's how you were registered. So first day of school, I'm Michelangelo. And when uh, first couple of little exams you had to take back then, you had to fill out a grid. And it was last name first, and I can never get the whole Michelangelo in. It was pretty much the only thing I could spell. Um, because, you know, coming home at night with homework, there was no one to read to me. Um, my parents both worked. They didn't understand English. Pretty much uh, we lived in a six-family house in Bushwick. Uh, and at the time, Bushwick was not the greatest place to live. Um, and, and it got actually worse. It was decent when I was little. We were fortunate to live three houses away from the 83rd police precinct, okay. which was a positive and a negative. The positive was the cops were right there. The negative was that throughout the night, throughout the day, especially at night though, sirens. Fire department was a few blocks away. There were fires all the time. Uh, the 38 bus was running up and down our street, a very busy street, DeKalb Avenue. Uh, and the corner of my house where 83rd Precinct was, amazingly enough, Wilson Avenue, oh, that's which crazy. is where you live, right? Yes. Wilson Avenue. So I, I noticed that this morning and it kind of gave me like a, a little feeling of this, this little interview was meant to be. Um, so... Um, Did that make you nervous hearing the sirens? Well, yeah. You know, as a little kid, uh, especially after my brother Joe came along three years later and I couldn't sleep in the same room with my parents, which essentially we lived in a six family uh, they, they were row houses. All the houses were attached. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, there were tons of people in the building. We were on the first floor right. So anyone walking by on a sidewalk at night, you heard the cops, the, the, the sounds you, you heard even more, the buses, everything else. Um, you know, sometimes uncouth youth, let's say, would knock on the windows in the middle of the night. My father would run out to see what happened and uh, or they kicked the garbage pails that were out front, the tin garbage pails. So there was always something going on. It wasn't, like I said, it wasn't the greatest of neighborhoods, but it was where my parents could afford. And my father actually, to make some extra money, I remember our rent was something like 50 or $75 a month because he was the super. Okay. In addition to working so hard on the docks, which back then there was a lot of work. He, he worked double time, triple time. Um, he, he spent the entire week sometimes on a boat when there was enough work just to make that extra money because his goal was to save enough to buy a house one day. And uh, so the rest of the house was pretty much all immigrants. So who was I gonna go to for help? So I, I learned what I could. Luckily, I was a pretty smart kid, but I was also the class clown. I also joked around a lot. Um, and, you know, uh, coming home, it was tough to do anything, school-wise. 
do you think being like a class clown was kind of like a way of, um, you know, avoiding, you know, that insecurity of not uh, being able to read and stuff like that? Or well, would you just like to have fun? You know, it, it's, it, it's funny. Like, when I look back at my life now and compare it to my father's, who left kind of a manuscript of pretty much till the point where I was born. It's, it's funny if I, if I tell you this later, how that happened. He left uh, half of his life kind of written down on paper that I'm trying to translate and I'm almost done with it. When I look at my life compared to his and then I compare, cause you know, it's a father's dream. It's a parent's dream to give their children everything they can, right? Make it a little easier. Sometimes it's a positive, sometimes it could, it could be a negative. But reading about his life and how hard it was in Sicily and those mountains and the things he went through, um, and then seeing how much he did for us. No one had ever gone to school, I mean, past fifth grade. And uh, next thing you know, he's insisting that we stay in school. That was his big, you know, because he, he knew he was pretty smart. And he said, if I give you guys the chance one day, maybe instead of breaking your back, you'll be able to take a briefcase to work and wear a suit. That was his dream, you know? And, and now what me and my two brothers have done for our, brother, uh, for our children, it, it's, it's a nice, you know, progression. Um, the, the, the reason I think, part of the reason that I clowned around so much in school is I didn't really have a lot of free time at home. Like, we didn't have a backyard to play in, per se. Um, we played in the police station parking lot when the cops, the cop cars were out, but even then, we had to wait until we were a little older. You didn't really have play dates back then. Gotcha. My room, you know, was a railroad house, right? Four rooms. My, my bedroom was next to my parents' bedroom. There was a doll on my bed. My mom was from Italy. She thought she was gonna have a girl. When she came from Italy, she had all these, she had her favorite doll with all these outfits. I wasn't gonna invite any kids in, nor would she let me have, have them in anyway, but that was like an old fashioned Sicilian thing. But uh, at home, I was, you know, my mom was working cross street at a factory. As, as young as six years old, I used to look out for my three-year-old brother and the next door neighbor who was off the boat, she would kind of look in on us once in a while. I, I often started the sauce. You know, she'd come home for lunch and tell me, look, when mommy calls you, turn, turn the gas on. So we were given a lot of responsibility. So I think it was an outlet. And I, I was naturally funny, I guess. I, I said the wrong thing at the, at the right time. And, uh, you know, but learning came partially easy. The hard part was reading. The hard part was reading because, you know, I didn't have books at home. Um, no one, you know, I, I could probably understand Italian much better than English, even at that point, because I grew up just speaking Italian. And uh, Sesame Street, you know, when Sesame Street started, I was probably around five, six years old. I used to watch that all the time. My parents made me watch it. Electric Company, Zoom, I think all these shows uh, from, my, from my youth kind of helped a little bit. But... Um, my mom did help me with homework a couple of times. <laughs> and, and, you know, embarrassingly what it was, right before Christmas vacation, I believe in the third grade, I had a teacher named Miss Santamaro. And she was pretty rough. She was very, we, we went to Catholic school. And this teacher was really uh, disciplinarian. So I think I had to write, I will not talk in class or speak in class like 500 times over the Christmas holiday. And I was eight years old. So my mom sees me at the table writing this in cursive, right? Uh, writing this, writing this. She goes, what are you doing? I go, oh, uh, I had to practice my spelling, I said. 
I have to write this 500 times to get good at it. She goes, I'll help you. So she wrote a few pages of I will not speak in class, not knowing what she was doing that year. Oh, that's so, too funny. Yeah. So you could play her a little bit because she wasn't too it, familiar. Yeah, she, she couldn't read at all. Even now she has, you know, uh, she speaks English, but with great difficulty. She, she wasn't, my, my dad learned a lot more. He had that heavy Italian accent, but he learned a lot more. He was, he was more willing to put himself out there and not be embarrassed by sounding different, you know. But uh, they both did pretty well overall. Okay. What grade were you in when the okay. teacher discovered you were so, struggling so with reading? We, we go through the first four years of school, including a kindergarten year where the next door neighbor, eighth grader, Nancy, Nancy was entrusted to walk me to the public school, PS, I think, 163. <clears throat> in, um, it was off of Knickerbocker Avenue in Bushwick. She would take me to school, to kindergarten. And I think I went to kindergarten a total of two weeks because essentially what happened was she took me the first few days and um, then she started cutting class. She'd let me play on a seesaw. I, I was in a sandbox by myself and then she'd come over and we'd go home. And she said, don't say anything to your mom. There was no school today, but don't tell your mom because then she won't <laughs> let you play in the sandbox. So what happened was, uh, kindergarten teacher sends home a note one day and my mom has it translated by a woman who lived in the next building who was a landlord who was Italian-American she was born here though and she said Angelina your son's not going to school my mom was flabbergasted she goes but no Nancy takes him every day so she knocked on Nancy's door next door Nancy came over and she confessed that and I said yeah she smokes cigarettes I think she was smoking funny cigarettes actually <laughs> And so my mom just pulled me out of kindergarten. She, she, she apologized to the teacher and all. She goes, you know, I, I can't take a chance. I have nobody else to walk him there. So uh, then the next year I started at St. Joseph's Patron School on Saddam Street off of Wilson. Um, first, first day of first grade to show you how much of an immigrant I was. Because um, kids have bullied their whole lives, right? I mean, all through history, there's always bullies. So I show up, and that year my mother's parents came from Italy, and they bought me a pair of patent leather red and black shoes. Now, to me, they were the be most beautiful thing ever. I had to wear a uniform. St. Joseph's, you wore a uniform. I was all proud of wearing a tie and a jacket. And on my feet are these red and black shoes. So online, little kindergartners, no, uh, first graders, on the a, on a way into the class, um, this one kid named Marcus, and then John Montfaletto, they start chiming in back and forth, bowling shoes, bowling shoes. I said, they're not bowling shoes. My grandma got them from Italy. And they just started and started. And I started crying. And my reaction, uh, my, my, uh, what I did afterwards was I pushed the big kid down because my father said, always go after the big kid. And when I knocked him down, the other one, like, you know, tried to, tried to get me. And I, and I scuffled with him. And the teacher pulled us to the side and talked to us. And they became my best friends and they didn't bully me anymore, but I didn't wear those shoes anymore at school. <laughs> so fast forward, so you know, we were going to Catholic school and Catholic school for some reason, I got promoted every year. I have some of my old report cards and you know, religion, I would get a decent grade. Um, like art, I would get a decent grade. But when it came to um, reading in particular, I pretty much had no reading level, very, very low reading level. Fourth grade comes along. I still remember the first day of fourth grade. Because I, I, I sat in the back, again, the class clown, 
with a couple of my friends. I think Nicholas Debellis, Salvatore Pugliese. Those are the guys I most remember in that class. Bernardo Lorino, but he was a really good kid. Um, and we're talking, and the, this pretty blonde lady comes in. It was her second year of teaching. And her last name is, uh, her name is Miss Pilla. And she's got short blonde hair, like a bob cut or something. I don't know what you call it. A lot of makeup. So she was like the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. So we're making noises. And she goes, Mr. Cassio, please quiet down. You know, Mr. Pugliese. Second time, Mr. Cassio. Third time, she goes, Mr. Cassio, the rest of the year, you will sit right here. And she tapped at the desk right in front of her. And she told the young lady that was sitting there to sit somewhere else. And I blushed. And at the same time, I was happy. I'm going to sit in front of the pretty lady. So sat in front of her. And I think it, it might have even been the first or second day of school. We played this game where everyone pulled out their, their book and we'd start reading. So she say Miss Pillar called on you, Dan. She'd say, Dan, and you would start reading. And then anytime you wanted, you could call another child's name and you'd have to pick up from there. So every time I was called on, I either didn't know where I was or really struggled with the words. So this kind woman and tremendous educator took it upon herself to, uh, you know, she gave the kids an assignment and while they were working, she said, come with me. We sat by the window. I think it was the window facing Saddam Street, a lot of light coming in, a little tiny desk. She sat on the little chair next to me. Right behind her was a bookshelf. She grabs Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss. She goes, let's read this together. And I wanted to impress her so badly that I tried very hard. Then she goes, take it home and take this book also and practice it and tomorrow. We'll she did that every day for a couple of weeks. And I actually started getting the hang of it. We also went to the Bushwick Public Library, just three blocks, three short blocks, two and a half from my house. And remember, the police station was between me and that, so you would think it's a safe place to go. We went with the school, we got library cards, we learned about the library system and everything. We got back to school like a day or so later, and Ms. Pilla says, I'm going to have a competition. This was probably late September. And she pull, pulls out this giant piece of oak tag paper, all the names on the left of the students in the class in alphabetical order. Belady, um, Cassio, Roberta Costanza, uh, uh, Nicholas DeBellis. I, I remember all these names. Like, you know, I remember so many of the kids in that class. And then she had little squares to the right of it. And she goes, we're going to do book reports and have a contest. Whoever does the most book reports by the Christmas break, I will give prizes to. How do we do book reports? Well, we're going to take a trip to the library. Uh, no, you go to you have your library cards. Go to the library, or if you have books at home, read the book. It was a simple little book report. Name name of the book, name of the author, how many pages, and a little one paragraph or whatever synopsis, right? And so I was so excited about this. I promised myself right in that that minute I was going to win to make her proud of me. Went home, rang Vinnie Sorrentino's bell. Lived two houses away from me. We walked to the Bushwick Public Library together. I took out two books. On the way back, we got chased home by neighborhood kids that were in gangs. And they chased the younger kids just to scare them, but we didn't know that. And uh, I got home and I promised myself I would never go back to the library. Did two book reports that night, took them in, got my two stars. After that, I started falling behind. Roberta Costanza that I mentioned was smartest kid in class. She had like six, seven book reports by the end of the second week or something. I, I still had two. So what I did was, uh, when I mentioned Nancy next door, her older sister Maria was dating someone named Ralphie who worked nights and during the day he'd pass by and always give me the comic section of the newspaper. 
So one day I asked him, can I have the whole newspaper? So I'm thumbing through it. I looked, I saw the sports section and this and that. And I said, wow, look, it's an article. There's a name of someone that wrote the article. So I started making up my own books. I started making up titles and I gave a synopsis of a phony story based on things I had experienced. The Statue of Liberty. We took my grandparents to the Statue of Liberty a couple of years earlier when they came from Italy. And I wrote a book by, I, I looked up a name in one of these stories and that was it, number of pages. Make a long story short, before the Thanksgiving break, I had like 30 book reports. I was all the way at the end. I doubled, more than doubled Roberta. And she goes, well, Mr. Cassio won, but everyone else, we're gonna continue the competition. I remember getting uh, a model of the Phantom of the Opera that glowed in the dark, uh, a blue transistor radio with a little wrist, I listened to all my Met games on that, wrist, wristband, uh, markers and things like that, but it was just, I was just so happy. And that really launched me into reading and, and you know, wanting to read. And I realized that school came easy after that. You know, school came easy. I could still be a clown. Uh, I could get my homework done right away, have fun, and still learn. Miss Pilla, at the end of fourth grade, right? The end of fourth grade, I started getting a little distraught. I'm like, Ma, what am I going to do in fifth grade? No Miss Pilla. My mother had enough of Miss Pilla at this point. I talked about her every day. Miss Pilla, Miss Pilla, she goes, in Italian, she told me, tell Miss Pilla uh, to freeze herself so that one day you can marry her. Nine-year-old kid, I thought it was a good idea, right? So we're in class, it's the last day. She's saying goodbye to everybody. I go up to her to say goodbye. And I say, Miss Pilla, will you pr please freeze yourself so one day I can marry you? And I still remember her face just lit up, a big smile, tears in her eyes. She goes, I love you so much, Michael. She goes, she, and I said, how am I going to find you? And she takes my report card and she writes her address on it. Now, let's fast forward. So that was, I was nine years old, right? Nine years old, living in Bushwick at the time. Uh, after sixth grade, two years later, I left the neighborhood. We moved to Ridgewood. So I didn't have, I, I wasn't in touch with that school anymore or anything else. I didn't know what happened with her. Um, so the, the nice thing is that at the end of fourth grade, I ended up with a six plus reading level. Sixth grade, I finished, I think third in the spelling bee. I was beaten by the two eighth graders. So she really helped me a lot, right? And I, I've always had great admiration and I love this woman, you know, even though for years and years, I, I had never seen her or whatever, over 40 years, much more than 40 years, 45 years almost. So did you feel like an obligation to make sure that your brothers were reading and on point and? Um, Maybe it's a Sicilian thing, but I know a lot of other people are like this. And uh, but from the earliest, my earliest recollection, from the time, and I remember then, I honestly remember my mom being probably about five, four to five months pregnant. I even remember the movie we were watching, the three of us, my dad, my mom, and I. My mom was pregnant, you know, pretty good sized bump on the belly there because I kept my hand on the belly trying to feel. She said. Uh, your little brother or sister is gonna kick. And we were watching a Jackie Gleason movie. It was a black and white movie with a little girl. He was a mute and he found, I forget the name of it. I looked it up, but it was from that year or the year before and it was on TV. We were watching it on a black and white TV. So I was only, I wasn't even three yet. So from the minute my brother was born, the sense of responsibility was drilled into my head by my dad. Oh, you're the big brother. You gotta, you gotta do things a certain way so that he follows in your footsteps. You gotta help him make sure nobody bothers him. 
and um, and I and I took that seriously, you know. So and then I started teaching my. I have a brother who's three years younger than me, Joe, who was a school bully. He's like a lot bigger than I am, but he was always getting in fights after school, and I always had to like back him up because the older brothers would would jump in and. Um, you know, I started teaching him to read, and, and he actually graduated as uh, with a 4.0 at Baruch, doing the same thing that I do. He's a CPA, and he works for one. He's a partner of one of the biggest firms. My youngest brother, who's 12 and a half, Anthony, he came much later in life. We called him Oops. He, uh, he went to Columbia University. So you could see how quickly a family could change the direction that, you know, they're... they're that the family is going in education is key you know being a good mom and dad look in our neighborhood there were a lot of kids that fell off the tracks a lot of kids some i know that that died in their early teens or early 20s because they got involved with the wrong thing uh, some of them came from broken homes um, you know there's a lot of sacrifices made along the way uh, but without the mom and dad keeping the kids kind of focused it, it, it could be disastrous you know when we moved from the bad neighborhood, right, quote unquote, Bushwick to Ridgewood, which was a tree-lined street, we had garages. We um, all of a sudden in that neighborhood, we started getting bullied. We were the first Italians on the block. We were guineas. Um, then a nice Irish kid makes friends with us, and after that, you know, my brother knocked out a couple of kids. We all became friends. Um, but my dad, early on, I think a couple of months after we moved in. He noticed one of the older kids, as he was coming home early from work one day, there wasn't any work on the docks. He just punched in and, and was coming home. He pulls around to our street and on the corner, we were all just hanging out talking. One of the older kids, one of my friend's brothers, not a friend of mine, was smoking a cigarette. At least I think it was a cigarette. He saw that, took a shower, went to Fresh Pond Road, the main street a couple blocks away, went store to store asking if they had work for a 12-year-old. Two days later, we're on line to go see a movie. It's summer. I'm line to go see a movie. He honks the horn. I run off the line, told my brother to stay on line with my friends. He goes, you have to come with me. You never questioned dad. So I go, all right, but what about Joe? Oh, your friend, his friends will take him home. So, and he takes me to the store and, and the owner of the store comes over, a guy named Vinny, Neapolitan guy, and he goes, your father said you're gonna work here. I said, okay, and that was it. You know, every night I get my $7 in cash for four and a half hours of work, put it in a mason jar at the end of the month. My father helped me open a bank account. It was always about teaching responsibility because they had it so tough. They wanted to make sure that you knew how to handle it and, and prepare for it ahead of time so you didn't have to have it as tough. You know, throughout the years as I got older, I've always been kind of a sensitive guy. I was very close with my grandfather. He died when I was around 15. The one that came from Italy, my mom's, my mom's dad, we were just... It was, he was almost like a dad to me. He was the one I went to with puberty questions. He was the one I went to uh, when I had issues that I didn't think I could discuss with my dad, who was going through a tough time. He had uh, a spinal injury uh, on the docks, and right before my brother Anthony, who was born in 75, right before Anthony was born, I was about 12 and a half at the time, uh, he was disabled from work. In, in the writing that he left behind of his life, all throughout it, he was happiest when he was working. He was happiest when he was among other people working and helping them, taking care of his family and all these things, you know? I think when he lost his job and couldn't work anymore, it, it was it was kind of, you know, he was only in his, in his 40s, uh, maybe late 40s, but it just crushed him. 
it was just a bad time because my dad and I were, you know, I learned all my lessons in life pretty much from my dad and my grandfather, but my father, I loved him like you wouldn't believe. So it was very tough to see what was going on. So with that digression of your father, did that give you like an extra sense of responsibility when you became a father yourself to always be on point with your game and I, focused? I, I, I think so. My whole life I wanted to be a dad, especially since I kind of was like a practice dad with my brother Anthony. And, you know, he was the first one to play Little League. I put him and some of the other kids of immigrants in the neighborhood into a Little League team, onto a Little League team. I'd take them places and I tried to make their lives more American, so to speak. That's what we used to say, because I didn't grow up with Little League or any of that. My father didn't know what it was. Um, so, uh, yeah, that responsibility, but I but I was happy to have it. So, as I, uh, you know, because of that responsibility, I said, yeah, one day I'd, I'd like to marry a nice woman and I want to have a boy, girl, and a boy. And that's what God blessed us with, you know. But the road to getting there, to meeting the right person, is sometimes filled with heartaches and and all other kinds of things and you know beautiful things and negative things you break up you meet people whatever until the right one comes along um and hopefully when the right one comes along you're in the right place to make the right decision because there's a lot of things that go into the formula when did your book come into play so my first girlfriend comes along and so i write her a love poem right i wanted to ask her out i was too shy to ask her out so i write her a little love poem um seventh grade in, in my new school, when we went to, uh, I went to junior high school, 93, the bicentennial was coming. So I was in a creative writing course and they said, you know, uh, I want everybody to write something about the bicentennial. Mr. Muller said this. He was the softball coach and the creative writing teacher. And he goes, uh, if it's good enough, it'll be in a yearbook. My poem made the yearbook. I wrote a poem about the bicentennial that I could almost still quote. Um, and I was very proud of it. I mean, teachers, later on, we had our 30th junior high school reunion about 12 years ago, 11 years ago, and teachers remembered that poem. You know, yeah. they remembered that poem. It was really it was really special to me. And, you know, it's nice to get a, a pat on the back. It encourages you to do better. And, and so, again, I wrote poems like, you know, when somebody passed away or to encourage someone or instead of, like, writing a little note, I, I make it into poetry. And I've always liked poetry because of that. I got into Edgar Allan Poe, which is a little dark, but, you know, I kind of felt like um, a lot of that pain that he felt, you know, given the road that I had gone through in my life and seeing pain, and I kind of connected with it and, you know, really read into those words. But I also, I've always loved children tremendously. You know, my little, my little brother, it was like the greatest joy was watching him at three years old be able to read and to graduate Columbia University. He's brilliant. My brother Anthony's brilliant. Both of my brothers are brilliant. And, um, you know, when I became a dad, uh, I had, the, nobody has a book, a, a formula, you know, there's no, uh, there's no magic to, to being a dad. There's no set diagram that you follow. You do the best you can. A lot of it is baptism by fire. And I remember the night that my wife told me that we were having a baby. Um, I couldn't sleep that night. I put my arm around her when we went to bed, had my hand on her belly the whole night. And I don't think I led a bad life at all, but I just made a deal with God and I just said, if I did anything to upset you, please do not ever take it out on one of my children. Just give them, I used to do that with my brothers too. Like when I was sad, I, I would have these thoughts and I would say, God, you know, don't let my brothers ever feel like, you know, ever have the thoughts I'm having right now. Uh, I was very cognizant of that, you know, depression or 
feeling down about anything hurts and you don't want to see people you love hurt. So in my mind, I was going to be a great dad. And, but given the strict upbringing and the disciplined upbringing, sometimes you overparent. You know, my kids, I think all three of them, I have uh, my son, Michael, who's a 27 year old engineer. I have my daughter, Madison, who's 24 and she's a school teacher. And my youngest, as we speak, is in London today, studying his, his third year at Notre he's at the University of Notre Dame, and he's doing fantastic. Very proud of all three of them. They sometimes tell me I was too strict. They sometimes tell me I was too, uh, too much of a disciplinarian. If they would only know what dis discipline means in the old days, when I was growing up, they wouldn't think that. But at the same time, they're very thankful and the thing that I'm proudest of is who they are amongst the world. You know, as a parent, you sometimes have to be a little bit tougher on your kids, but how they present themselves to the world and the impact they make on the world, indirectly or a little bit, you know, get a little bit of the credit. The parents have to be the ones that plant those seeds so that they grow up the right way. And, and my kids, I think, have grown up the right way, you know? They sound like they're doing amazing and they're well adjusted into society. That's, that's what any parent, you know, prays for, you know, from the minute, you know, you're going to be a parent. It's like me, this, the, the word me doesn't exist anymore. It's always them, you know, and I'm like that with my, with my parents. My father passed away nine years ago. I still miss him tremendously. Uh, my mom, you know, I, I speak to her a couple of times a day this weekend. She's spending with us. You know, she was very sick last year. We almost lost her. She made a tremendous recovery from a brain injury that I'm just like thanking God every day. Um, so my family is everything to me, you know, uh, my brothers and, and, and their kids, you know, it, it's just so nice knowing that all our kids are healthy. They're all well adjusted in school. They're smart. Uh, I know my dad would be just, you know, if, if there's a heaven, which I think there is, he's extremely happy and proud, you know? Absolutely. Um, do you believe that like, uh, from your book, when I was a child, I was always afraid. It takes an approach of like really just teaching kids to challenge your fears, to look and explore before you make quick judgments. Is that how you, uh, the approach you took with all your parenting, where you sat your kids down and explained to them that, you know, this is why you can't do this, this is what happens, and were you very... Uh, one of One of my biggest fears before I became a dad and as a matter of fact it magnified after we had our first child but one of my biggest fears was uh, what do I tell them when they ask me what happens when you die I know this is kind of heavy but growing up I remember when my mom's aunt died I was a little kid that she had just had Joe my brother Joseph I was maybe three and a half four years old and she took it very hard because she took coming to the United States hard. She did it for my dad, but she left all her family behind. And until her parents came to the United States a few years later, she was very lonely and, you know, kind of, kind of upset. So when I, as a little kid, when I saw how she reacted to death, not understanding death, you know, I asked her about it and she said, oh, no, no, it's never going to happen to us. It's never going to happen to you. I go, but what does it, oh, no, she went to, to God. She went to Jesus. So. You know, I had this in the back of my mind. I wanted, I wanted to be a parent that never lied to his children. I wanted to be a parent 
that also not only never lied, but explained things in a way that I could actually tell you, I truly, with all my life experiences, believe that, okay? So in between Michael and Madison, I, I came to this point, I guess it was just, you know, I had an accounting practice that was growing. We had just started our own business a few years before. Um, I had nice partners, we got along. Everything seemed to be going nice, you know? Um, and I just got a little down. I forget what it was that triggered it. And I didn't know if I wanted to have another baby. And I went through this, you know, crisis of uh, what does the world mean? I want the world to mean so much. Why do I want to put a life into the world um, if, if at the end of the day it doesn't mean anything? And, you know, being a kid that started in Catholic school and, and, and all these other things, um, religion was always part of my life. And I always believed but I always questioned and I always wanted signs. I remember being a little kid in the tiny little bathroom in, in Bushwick, coming home from school one day and we had learned something about God, that God is everywhere. And we didn't even have a sink in the bathroom. It was one of these tiny little bathrooms. The sink was only in the kitchen right outside of the bathroom. But I'm sitting there in the, in, in the bathroom and there was a, um, the bathtub was next to me in a little window to the backyard. And I said, God, if, if you're really there, you know, make the curtain move and the curtain moved. And I got so scared. I ran out of the bathroom with my <laughs> pants down and it was because the window was open and it was windy, you know, but you know, these things were, were things that I needed to explain. And I'll give you the, the biggest example of where this came in. Right. And it's probably also responsible for any of the, most of the animosity that my kids sometimes express towards me. Because, you know, we never see 100% eye to eye with our kids. And I wouldn't want to. I want them to be their own individuals. We disagree politically. We disagree on a million different things. But I, I welcome that. And I welcome discussing it and, you know, making good decisions. So 9-11 hit. And at the time, Michael was about, I don't know, eight, eight years old. Madison was about five. Stephen is a toddler, about two. I get home from work and the kids are sitting at the table. My wife's pale as a ghost. I had called a ton of clients. My brother who was in the building, supposed to be in the building, but he wasn't that day. His staff was, they all got out okay. Everyone that I had called that I thought had anything to do with with the World Trade Center or you know could have been in that area, thank God was popping up okay. And I was devastated though, because I'm coming home to three little kids and, and it seemed like the world was gonna be different. So I remember sitting with my back to the sliding door to the backyard and my son Michael was sitting to my right, little guy sitting across from me, my daughter on the left and, and my wife next to her. And I said, kids, especially to the two older ones, um, if you have any questions, I know today's a, a kind of a scary day. If you have any questions, I want you to ask daddy. So Michael asks me, he looks at me, he goes, daddy, I just have one question. He said, if God loves us, how could he let this happen? And, 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 you know, all those fears of, you know, becoming a dad and saying the right thing and believing what you said. And I, and I really thought about it. And, uh, I looked at this little kid who you could see had, it was really scared. And as Michael's like one of the kindest kids you could ever meet. He's just a, he's, he's a great kid. Um, and I said to him, you know, you know, we go to church. We don't go all the time, but we, we go. And Daddy believes in God. And um, 
I've read parts of the Bible. Some of it I, I believe more than other parts, but there's some things that I really, really believe. There's a part in the Bible that says we're made in God's image. Man is made in God's image. I said, do you understand what that means? So he's, he's old enough to understand that. And he says to me, yeah, that we're a little bit like God. I go, right, we're almost like a little copy of God. So let's picture God like the sun. And God is the whole sun. And each one of us is just a little speck. So I'm your father on earth. They say that God is our father in heaven. Let me ask you a question. Would your father on earth ever let anything bad happen to you if he controlled every moment of your life? And this little kid looks at me and he goes, no, you would never let nothing happen bad to me. And I said, do you want daddy to control every moment of your life? And he thought about it and he said, like when I play and when I do this and when I do that, he said, no, I don't think so. I go, God gave us free will. And unfortunately, some people use that free will in a bad way and they hurt good people sometimes. But sometimes after something like this, a lot of good people get together and make the world a better place. So, I mean, that was something that I, I truly believe is how I, I reconcile how all these things work. But It's a beautiful way to present it to kids as well. But it's from, you know, it's from the stories that you hear growing up. It's, it's from your parents' belief system. And, and again, my parents, old-fashioned Sicilian, you know, they would, oh, no, no, don't worry about dying. You're never going to die. And they did that because you were little. They didn't want you to be afraid. So I said that that would be something I do differently. So I was always very honest with them about it because I didn't want them to grow up with that phobia that I had, you know, those fears. But as a little kid, my, my, one of my first fears uh, that I remember clearly was that when, when my brother Joe comes along and they stick me in the other bedroom, I'm three years old, three years and three months. They stick me in my own little bed and my mom goes, look, there's a nightlight. The nightlight was uh, Jesus and Mary hologram that depending on how you turn, you either see Jesus or Mary. And it was right above my bed. So when I looked at it, they were always looking at me, which kind of made me feel okay. But at the same time, I'd see things. I'd see heads on the bureau. I would, my, my imagination was running wild. And I remember hearing the heartbeat in my ear, trying to put the pillow over my head. And then night after night, my mom would have to come and get me and stick me in their bed for a little while. And then after a while, they said, look, you're a big boy, you gotta stay in your bed. So those were some, some fears, you know, the cop cars and uh, what if something happens and the time that we got chased by these kids, you know, we thought we were going to get killed because in the back of your mind, that's, you know, you heard about people being killed. Um, uh, a dripping faucet one time and my father got up and he goes, what are, you, what are you afraid? The noise, the noise. I go, I think water's dripping and we're going to drown. So he takes me to the sink and he goes, look. It goes down the sink, but you know what we're going to do? We're going to take a rag and put it under it. You won't hear it anymore. Tomorrow, we're going to fix it together. It was a weekend. He put it in a new washer, and I was like, wow, my dad could fix anything. So he always told me, don't be afraid. You know, When you're afraid of something, you're usually afraid because you don't know what it is. You've got to investigate it. There's certain things we should be afraid of, but we know those things, right? You know, you should be afraid when you're crossing the street. You should look. You know, if you're going into a, a zoo, you don't want to go into the cage with the, with the bear or, or the lion. Uh, but going back and, and tying in the responsibility of taking care of, you know, my younger brothers. The year that I turned, I think, uh, nine or ten, maybe eight, eight or nine. My Uncle Joe, who was much younger than my dad when they came to this country together, he became a Met fan early on 
and he learned Spanish pretty quick. So he used to hang out with a lot of Spanish guys and they used to go to Met games. And so when I turned either eight or nine, he got me a Tommy Agee glove. <laughs> and because he wanted for me to have someone to play with, he got my brother Joe a tiny little Rico Petroselli glove who was on the Red Sox. And uh, Tommy Agee was one of my favorite players. He would stand there pigeon-toed for the Mets. And, you know, we were out front. Again, you know, you had a little concrete sideway. And then if the ball went in the street, the bus would hit it. You had to fish it out of the sewer. We did that many times. So we would just toss in the ball on the hand to each other, right, with the new gloves. We were so happy we had gloves. Other kids had gloves. They had little league. We, we didn't have any of that. A couple of kids approach us from the block. This one kid, an Italian kid named Anthony, who thought he owned the block because his father had an ice cream truck uh, and he owned the building. And there were two Spanish um, brothers, Miguel and Jason, that, that lived across the street from us. So they come over. And the big mouth Anthony was kind of a bully. He starts saying, hey, look, they got gloves. Look at that little welfare glove. He's making fun of my brother's little glove. Look at that little glove. I said, leave my brother alone. Leave my brother alone. Next thing I know, he comes over to me. The other kid says something. I turn my head. Anthony pushes me to the ground. And I ran inside, crying. My brother Joe comes inside. Also, my father goes, what happened? It was a Saturday. He goes, what happened? I said, oh, Anthony, you know, the one with the ice cream truck. You know, he, was, he was making fun of my brother. And I told him to stop. And then what happened? He pushed me. And what did you do? I ran inside. My father actually smacked me. I was mortified. My father never hit me as a little kid, right? It, it crushed me. I couldn't stop crying. He, he hugs me. He says to me, listen to me. He goes, whenever anybody does something like that to you, you have to stand up for yourself. If you run away, they're going to do that to you every day. So he tells me, next time that happens, you have to stand up for yourself. And if he fights you, you knock him down and you grab his hair and you punch him until he stops. And they'll never bother you again. Well, about a week later, my mother had to pull me off of Anthony. The other two ran away because as I'm crying, I'm beating this kid's face in, even though he's bigger than me, because I did exactly what my father said. And I was crying through the whole thing because I wasn't a violent kid. <laughs> So that was, that was like a real fear that I faced there because I was afraid of, of those things. But, but it's not a good fear. You know, even now I, I'd love to write a, and I have a couple of ideas of, about writing a book about bullying. Like how do you approach bullying? It's, a, it's such a terrible thing when you think of it. And maybe all of us indirectly have been, you know, side bullies. Like, you know, you know a bully and you laugh because the bully does things and you become that bully's friend. And then you're a bully by, 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 fact, by, by the fact that you're friends with this guy. Or, or this 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 girl this, this person and uh, it's a sad thing because bullying really hurts people um, absolutely so that was one of the so really that's a bad new uh, project yeah. that you have spinning yeah around I have a couple head. of things and I think I want to use uh, I want to use animals instead of uh, people uh, want to use like maybe a lake setting with all the animals that live around the lake and one of the animals is kind of a bully and then we have to figure out a nice way to end it you know, a nice way to uh, uh, make all these animals realize that they're all the same and they should all be nice to one another. And at the same time, put it like a, a realistic yes. solution to it Correct. that actually be helpful rather Correct. than You could just... put the person... See, I started by using children and then it just becomes too personal, you know? And I yeah. can't use my father's lessons to do that because they'd all end up, you know, not walking too good. <laughs> so I, I want to be a little kinder, but... From where my father grew up and, and, and how he grew up, 
I could understand why he did what he did and, and why his philosophy was what it was. I mean, he was, he wasn't a big guy, but he was strong and, uh, you know, he saw a lot of bad things and, and survived. So, uh, he wanted to make sure his kids could, could take care of themselves, you know, but I think he was right that when you step down from a bully and you use that fear to keep you away from it, that bully will continue to pick you apart. I saw it in Catholic school. I saw it later on in my life. You know, I, I, I saw my kids be victims. And my daughter Madison was a little pipsqueak growing up. And, uh, you know, sometimes this one bigger girl in the class, till this day, Madison's hurt by it, you know. Um, she ended up great now, but, you know, she, she, uh, she remembers those days of being bullied in a, in a bad way, you know. And it, it, it damages you. It wastes a lot of good energy. It wastes a lot of time that you could be creative, you could be learning, you could be doing other things. Instead, you're just sad. Why do they do that to me? Why do they say that to me? So when you wrote the poem, was this for your children because they were yes. going through things? Or was this one of these things that like you were like, oh, I'm going to become a father? And no, you no, I, just I, I actually, through. I was a father already. We moved, um, you know, when Michael was born, we were living in Ridgewood. My dad had two, two family houses at the time. We were living in Ridgewood. And as soon as it was coming up to the point where Michael was going to go to kindergarten. We started looking out on the island. We liked New High Park. We found the house. We dormered it. We went into debt like crazy. We dormered it, and we started raising our family there. Madison was about two and a half when we moved in. Stephen wasn't born yet or even conceived. And, you know, going from the house that we lived in to a house with trees above it where acorns would hit the roof at night and they'd hear a noise, and the furnace sounded different, and we had the uh, uh, hot water baseboard, and that pings every once in a while. There was always something they were afraid of. So I'd make up little rhymes, little jokes, little funny sayings. And then I said, uh, okay, when you go to bed now, Madison, if you hear something on the roof, I want you to say this rhyme. And she would say the rhyme the next day, I'm not afraid of, I'm not afraid of the acorns anymore. I don't know if there was always acorns, but she wasn't afraid of the acorns anymore. Michael, one night, there's a part in a book about uh, a tree grabbing him. We, we were sleeping, Michael's down the hall from us and we, he starts screaming, he was about six years old or so, six and a half. Was, daddy, daddy, mommy, mommy, the tree is grabbing me, the tree is grabbing me. I run into the room, what's he talking about? The moon was hitting the tree from across the street just in the right way, there was a shadow, a silhouette of a, of a tree branch. He, you know, his imagination said that this tree is gonna grab him. So the next day I actually took him outside, I said, look, it was this tree, it was the shadow, and you know, so then like I said, look, it's waving at you. Think about the tree waving at you. So I made a little rhyme about that. So over the course of, you know, some time, I made up all these little rhymes. I had some of them on post-it, some of them on a page. And one night I uh, had trouble sleeping. I think it was late, late 2000, November or so of 2000, because the original poem that I wrote, that I put all together, I, I, I have it saved. It was a little bit crude, but it was very close. And I went to my desk in the bedroom and I took all these things. I go, you know, what? I'm going to make a long poem out of it. Because Michael's teacher at the time, a Miss Stromstead, nice young lady, um, she had asked me if I would go on a school trip with, with her and the kids. You know, she, she needed volunteers. I volunteered. I had my own business. I could take, I could take the day and I went. And we got to talking and she was all, she loved Dr. Seuss. I go, Dr. Seuss. I, I, and I told her my story. And, and she goes, well, you know, Dr. Seuss Day is coming up. Would you be willing to uh, read a Dr. Seuss poem to the kids? Could you come in? I go, yeah, I can start my day. I'll come in and then I'll go to work. And I told her that I had 
recently put together my own poem. She goes, please bring it in and you can read it to the kids. See what reaction you get. Well, I read it. To, I read the Dr. Seuss poem. I think it was one fish, two fish. And then I read my story and that she loved it. A couple of days later, Michael comes home with a laminated poem. She laminated it for me and wrote me this beautiful note. She goes, you really have to pursue getting it illustrated and published as a teacher. I know it could help children. It opens up discussions to help them overcome their fears. And uh, she said, uh, you can do all kinds of lessons with it, teaching children about couplets and rhymes and this and that. She was just such a nice woman. And over the years, I thought of it. And then a couple of times, I even looked at getting it illustrated. But every illustrator I spoke to wanted three, four hundred dollars in illustration. And I'm building an accounting practice. I kind of kept putting it to the side. So a few years back, uh, my son, Michael, the oldest one, the one who, who's teacher, Ms. Strom, said, did this, um, I, I guess four years ago now, because it's three years that the book came out. He contacted his friend Bentley Wong, who went to the same school as him. I think Bentley's about a year younger, but they knew each other from the school. And, and he knew Bentley was a pretty good artist. He said, Bentley, you know, I'd like to give my dad a gift. Would you illustrate this poem? So they'd hang out together doing I don't know what in a garage here and there, right? And Michael and sometimes Madison, my daughter Madison, would tell Bentley what they envisioned when I would read these little rhymes to them. Very and that's cool. how this all grew. And he, he, you know, he charged them a, a pittance and did a really nice job, the kid. And um, he gave me my, my birthday present that year. Uh, three, four months late, he shows up. He wasn't living at home at this point. Shows up with a little brown paper bag with a black bound book, with a nice hardcover black bound book that another friend worked somewhere where he did that. And these small illustrations in it. And I was just floored. And he said, Dad, now you got to get it published. So... You know, I reached out. I really thought that uh, it would be a lot easier to do. I didn't know how, how it worked. So I contacted so many people. And um, children's books especially are very difficult to get published if you don't have a name, if you're not a big Instagram presence, uh, if you don't have a following, if you haven't written other stuff, if you're not a celebrity. Um, so Scholastic loved the book. I have a letter from them. They, they loved the book. They looked at it. And they said, it's got great merit. It's got great, you know, it's a great story. It, it, you know, children could benefit from it. All that is true. You should have come to us earlier because, you know, we use our own illustrators. We would never use your illustrations. I go, but we could change that, can't we? It's too late in the process. What we encourage you to do is write additional books. If, if this is what you're all about, you, you could, you know, you could be successful. And at some point you could do something. They don't want an accountant that's running a full-time business that doesn't have time to promote. They, they can't invest in that because there's there's not a lot of money to be made in children's books unless you, you hit big. So through Ms. Stromstead, who I contacted, I contacted Ms. Stromstead, the teacher that my son had, who encouraged me to get it published one day. Through Ms. Stromstead, I learned of Mr. Contrati, a teacher at, at, at uh, her school, who had written his second book now and used a company called Mascot Books. So I contacted them, made a nice deal with them. They, they did some editing, which they really didn't edit. I did most of the editing. Um, I added a verse uh, at the end to tie it all out uh, perfectly. Changed one or two things. Uh, decided what illustrations to put on the front and back. Uh, I wanted a story about conquering fear at the bottom because I wanted to explain 
what the purpose of the book was. And, uh, you know, it, it just was really, really fun. But an, another wonderful thing, and, and when I tell you wonderful, I mean, I can't, I can't really tell you enough how much this means to me that happened from all of this. And again, I have to thank my son is that about a year and a half ago, I remembered that report card with the address that Ms. Pillow wrote on it. No and way. I said to my wife, you know, I've been looking for Miss Pillar. Now, as a little kid, we were very respectful back then, maybe more so than now, because now a lot of people call each other by first name. So I remembered her first name as Josephine. I know it was Jay Pillar. And I guess as a little kid, I thought it was Josephine. So I'm looking for Josephine Pillar for years here and there. I couldn't find it. Uh, nothing popped up. Nothing that made sense. So then one, one Sunday, my wife goes, you should try to look for her again. And I said, yeah, you know... I proposed to her and I remember her writing her address. She goes, where's those report cards? I go, you know, my dad gave me those report cards before he passed away. I think I know where they are. And I found them in this box of like old treasures that I kept, you know, little things that you keep, my Firebird emblem on a card that I totaled and this and that. And there's the report cards. There's an address. Three dash something, I think it was. It ends up being an address in Brooklyn. So you Google the address with the last name Pillar. The name Joan Pillar Ferraro popped up. I go, wow, this person would be around the right age. But, and then Felix Pillar may have lived at this house, would be this age. Wow, that could be her dad because I knew she would be in her late 60s, right? At this point. This other person might live there. My wife goes, why don't you go on Facebook? And she doesn't use Facebook. If there's a way to message people, see if you find any of them. If there's a way to message them, just send a message. Say, hey, my name is this. I was at this school. Because of the age, I couldn't find Josephine Pillar. Because of the age, I, te- I messaged uh, Joan Pillar Ferraro. When I tell you, Dan, I was in my bedroom when I sent the message, went down to have breakfast with my wife. It was a Sunday. I got a hit right away. It was her. Michael, I remember you. Oh, my God, Michael, you, you're coming into my life at such a, such a time. I think she was going through a little bit of a tough time maybe. But... We spoke the next day, so long on the phone. We, uh, they interviewed us for an article. I think you read it. Uh, I, I met her on a little radio show, and the guy botched up the video. We never even got the video or audio from it. I should have really tried to do something bigger, but it's it's tough to get any any press or anything when when you're a small person. But meeting her, hugging her, getting to tell her thank you, not only on my behalf, but for my parents. My parents' dream of their children being educated came true, and she was a big part of it. Because I think if I would have continued that path of being the class clown, I might have been successful in real estate or doing something else. But I don't think I ever would have put my brothers on the right track. My brother, the bully, Mm -hmm. the one that was three years younger than me, and then the younger one, who was going to teach him to read at three years old. Maybe they would have done it on their own, but she fast-tracked us, the whole family. Uh, Teachers can't, they don't get enough um, they, they don't get enough credit for what they do. I mean, they, they're, the, they're our kids' parents during the day. They really are. And some of them really take that seriously, and they should be, you know, loved for that. No, absolutely. I have a teacher, Metzger, that uh, really was an influ- influential part of my life, where uh, I was kicked out of regular schools, and I was at a BOCES program for behavioral problems. And uh, she really helped me get everything together to go back to regular schools. I ran for a class president, um, became class president, started photo book club. 
and I did a lot of things that I wouldn't have done without her encouragement and was able to get back into regular schools and uh, graduate high school, in which she, she, I was uh, definitely destined not to at the time. It's amazing how they could really build up your self-esteem, you know? I mean, teachers, you know, parents, I mean, it's important to build up a child's self-esteem, that feeling of, of worth. So until fourth grade, I would get punished because I, I didn't do my homework. I, it was never a teacher that took the time that she took to sit me to the side and spend a couple, and she just jump-started me. You know, it was just a perfect uh, combination of uh, kindness and patience that she had. And I think that was my most behaved year also. I said a little funny thing here or there, but I wanted to behave so good for her. Because you I, had a respect for her. I, I had a tremendous respect for her. She, she, I, you know, some people love you along the way and, and do something for you that you can never really pay back. She is one of the most important people in my life. Did that make you like a proactive dad in the sense that like you didn't punish your kids if they didn't do your, their homework? You actually sat down with them to try and get them on page? I, as my kids were growing up, I, um, you know, I'm building an accounting practice and the hours were crazy. When we, were, when we first started, it was three of us. Two of us were CPAs, one a financial planner. So we had two companies. We were doing planning and, and accounting and tax returns. And we started with pretty much nothing, a handful of clients. And as we're building it up, we had no employees. We'd work on Sundays making copies for each other. You know, we, We'd answer the phone. We did everything. And so as a matter of fact, my daughter Madison, at one point when we moved into the new house, you know, a couple of years in or whatever, she said to my wife one morning when she woke up, she goes, Mommy, where does Daddy live now? Because it had been like two, three weeks. She didn't see me because she would be in bed when I came home. And and she would be asleep when, when I left. I'd leave really early, get home really late. You know, so working all those uh, hours made me a little absent in some of that. Um, whenever it wasn't tax season, I was there for the sports. And, and whenever I could, I came home and I read to them or I... Uh, help them with, 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 with test questions and things like that. But my wife, who was, we were fortunate enough for her to take a number of years off from her nursing job, and then she went back later on, and like 12, 13 years ago, she became school nurse in the neighborhood, which worked out great also. But during those years, she sat with them and made sure they got their homework done. So the first one, Michael, she spent a lot of time with. Uh, Madison, she spent a lot of time with. Steven was just a born genius. I mean, they're all very smart, but Steven, we call him Shaft, because he was the kid that you had to wake up and put into the baby seat because you had to take Madison to lacrosse and Michael to baseball, and he never got rest or anything, and he learned everything on his own. And, uh, but it all worked, you know, it all worked, and to see them uh, do well was amazing. My daughter Madison, for example, went to New Hyde Park Memorial, and when she was selecting colleges, her, uh, guidance counselor said to her I said where do you want to go and she goes I really want to go to UMass I want to be a teacher but I want to do psychology also I want to help children one day she goes oh well that's a real reach school for you now her grades were low 90s but she was captain of the cheerleaders she was uh, one um, not the publisher but she was one of the top people on the yearbook committee and she took all these other things that she did very seriously spent a lot of time on it she said to us, if you send me there, I promise I'll work really hard. Well, long story short, she graduated in three years instead of four, saved a whole year of tuition, and she graduated whatever the highest magna or summa cum laude, almost a 4-0 grade point average. We're so proud of her. 
and she was the one that had trouble learning, she really didn't. You know, that, that guidance counselor could have led her the wrong way. Didn't really know her and made that blanket statement instead of saying, okay, so apply for it and, and you know, work hard. Her grades weren't that bad. So those are things that along the way, say she wouldn't have picked that school, um, would she be where she is now? Maybe, but that was something that she faced and said, no, I could do it. And she did it. And I was proud of her doing that, you know? So some of the lessons I think, you know, got through to them. Absolutely. Just to jump back real quick. Yeah. Um, you said your wife really took proactive with making sure your kids could read. Did you, does she know your story? about not being able to read. So, oh, yeah. So I, I think she's tired of hearing it by now. The last <laughs> well, three years. Obviously, <laughs> yes. Um, so really, it's important to have a good partner that really knows you and knows your story so they can help I, with the family. You know, my father, God rest his soul, had a lot of old Sicilian sayings and, you know, very old-fashioned, but that's what he knew. But a lot of these old sayings and a lot of these old ways of uh, living life and raising your family... There's a lot of uh, knowledge there and wisdom. So he, I remember him telling my mom so many times, you know, Angelina, we have to, you know, the kids have to realize that we both feel the same about these things. Otherwise, they're not going to listen. So we have to both be on the same page. You know, he would say to her in Italian, but basically that's the message he was getting to her. Because if the parents disagree on things, the kids see that. And then they want to please both of us. You know, unless one of the parents is a bad person and bad to the kids, they love their parents' kids, right? Absolutely. So they want to please both of you. So find a way to um, get your message on point together and, and, you know, lead the kids in that direction. So I was the project guy. So my daughter had to build Stonehenge. We went and bought all this stuff. I'd help her. The first year that my, Michael was in Scouts, the first year that he was in a Pinewood Derby, I did such a good job helping other parents get their cars ready that I forgot to put graphite in his wheels and, I, and we didn't cheat. We just made it with all the stuff and his car didn't go across the finish line. Here's this little kid. We're leaving the Boy Scout meeting and I said, I'm sorry, Michael. And he started crying. He goes, it's okay, dad. I go, next year we'll win. We won the next two. We nice. built these cars that flew. So, you know, those little projects you do with them, uh, those days that you spend at the, at, at the beach or all of a sudden you just get up one day and you go to an aquarium with them Anywhere you go, you could teach them a lesson. But those little moments, like it doesn't have to be a big vacation or whatever. Those little moments when you're together, they remember it forever. You know, they they'll remember it and and look back on it and and that was a happy day, and uh, happy days. We should build up as many of them as possible because there's going to be sad days. But if we adjust our kids to understanding that this is the way life is. And that, you know, we hopefully will have a lot more happy days than sad. And we are and we could really help make a lot of happy days for other people. They're going to be pretty well adjusted and do a lot better than, than, than otherwise, you know. But the key, Dan, and everything, I really believe this, is that if, if, if a child doesn't have a mom and a dad or a, a father figure and a mother figure to help them and, and to guide them along the way, they have a big strike against them starting out. You know, you can't expect the school system to raise your kids. Some of these teachers do tremendous jobs, but there's, and, and there's probably a lot of Miss Pillars, but how many children could one Miss Pillar take care of, right? She, she was lucky that year that she picked on me 
and I fell in love, right? And, and she was a positive role model to all of us. Everybody wanted to learn in that class. She made it fun, maybe because she was young and just starting out, um, but she was just a kind, good person. But you have to do your part at home to get that child ready to step into that school day one with, with you know, the ability to be able to open a book and understand that, you know, these are sentences, these are words, and the more I know of these things, the easier it's going to be to learn. I think we should just leave it with that. Thank you. Dan, this has been a real pleasure. When I was a child, I was always afraid. Can be purchased on Amazon. Links will be in the notes or at the website, Instagram, Twitter, everything else. Facebook.